0: But today we want to continue our study in the Beatitudes. Last week we went over the law, we went over some real tough scriptures. Um, today we want to keep forward, keep going forward, we're going to hit 20, we kind of briefly discussed 20 in the, in the Q&A, but we're going to hit it hard today, we're going to hit 20 and like the A portion of 21. So that's all we're doing today. It's 20 in the A portion of 21. The Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. Thank you. And the title will be The Authority of Jesus. The Authority of Jesus. Authority of Jesus. Amen. And let me say this. Today this is going to be a little different. Um, because today we're, we're, gonna, uh, we're gonna nerd out, if you will, on 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 our, our first century Jewish history and culture. In order for you to get a full handle on verse 2021, 20, we're gonna have to nerd out on first century Jewish history and Jewish uh culture. are get a feel for what Jesus is saying, to get the magnitude for what Jesus is saying. Because having that understanding of how see when you read the scriptures, you don't you wanna you want to see how did these first century people that heard Jesus' words, how did they understand what he was saying? We don't want to take it to our 2017 mind. We want to say, okay, what would a person living in the first century, when Jesus speaks these words, what would they think it to mean or to be? And so in order to understand that, you've got to understand the Jewish culture, the Jewish history, the Jewish faith, if you will. So we're going to... Look do a, some, some nerd work, which I call and I'll say that in a positive light, um, to, to look at the history to get a better idea of verse 20 and the eight part of 21 is what we're going to do today. And which what was that again? Matthew chapter 5, be added, I mean, sorry, the seven miles. We're verse 20 and 21. I'll just read 22, but we won't really get 22 as much today. Just the A part of 22. So, the word of God reads, chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. 22. Key verse, key verse. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The word of God, the people of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, God. Illuminate your scriptures, God. God, illuminate your word that we may see your truth, God, and be set on fire by it. God, may we come to see your love and your wisdom <laughs> in these words, Lord. May we come to see your authority and your authority in our life, guys, as we study these scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so last week we were looking at the law, and in that last part of verse 19, Jesus talks about those who teach the law, will be great in the kingdom of God. Those who teach God commandments, who teach and keep them, will be great in the kingdom of God. And then he says that those who don't or do the opposite would not be great, it would be least. So we want to continue just to keep going down. And in verse 20, after making these commandments about who will be great in the kingdom of God, he says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven but I want you to notice something in verse 20 Jesus only says I say to you unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven why does he only say scribes and Pharisees why doesn't he, be, why doesn't he include the Sadducees as well because the Sadducees and the Pharisees they are the ones that ruled Israel at the time matter of fact They were the main ones on the Sanhedrin what we all look at. They ruled Israel. The people got their understanding from the Pharisees and Sadducees, but here in verse 20, Jesus only mentions the scribes and Pharisees, their righteousness. And not only this, when you go to other places like Matthew 23, go there, I want to show you this. He only mentions the scribes and Pharisees. Go to Matthew 23, I want to show you this. Make it a point here. Just turn a few pages, Matthew 23, chapter 23. This is where Jesus is given the eight woes, if he was given the woes. We're look at 13, we're going to go down and just call a list of verses. I just want you to get an understanding of what he's doing here. He's calling out scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 13, Matthew 23, he says, But woe to you, who? Scribes and what? Pharisees. Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at verse 15. He says, But woe to you, who? Scribes and Pharisees. Right? Look at 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and hypocrites why is Jesus only calling out scribes and Pharisees why is he not calling out uh, the uh, Sadducees why is he only calling out these two groups when all of the Sadducees and the Pharisees they made up the whole entire season. these were the people who ruled Israel See, let me let me explain what the Sanhedrin for example. Israel, they were ruled by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, a ruling body, it's kinda of like the Supreme Court. And it was like seventy men. And in the Sanhedrin, most half of it was made of either a Sadducee or a Pharisee. Just like in our in our in our um, politics, we have Republican and Democrat, right? We have other parties, but our two main parties are Republican and Democrat. Same thing with the Sadducees. I mean, with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of either Sadducees or uh, Pharisees. Your Sadducees were more of your, your your liberal bunch. So they would be, if we're going to make a comparison, they would be like your Democrats. They are more of your liberal bunch. And you had the, the Pharisees, those were more of like your, your conservative branch, if you will. And this council, they root all of Israel. They are the ones that the people of Israel look to for, for, for wisdom, for guidance, to how to live holy. This is who they, they follow. Now, with these Sadducees... The majority, the Sadducees, they had the power, if you will, as far as numbers. Of the 70 people, most of the people on the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. All of the high priests, if you will, those were Sadducees. And the Sadducees were mostly wealthy men. They were aristocrats. And they were political men. They they would appease Rome. They would try to do things to keep the peace because they liked their power and position. So they were more of your, your liberal bunch and they wanted to mingle with Rome so things could stay good how it is. But with your Pharisees, even though they were a minority in the Sanhedrin, they really ran things they had the most influence. It was the, the Pharisees who had the ear of the people. Why? Because the Pharisees, along with the scribes who were Pharisees, they were the ones who taught God's word. They were the ones who had the standard of piety. They were the ones who you come to know when, when you want to look at the words of Moses, and how you understand and interpret things. See, they were the ones over doctrine. The Sadducees were more the political people. But it was the Pharisees... That really brought the word, if you would, that really taught doctrine, and really held the standard of piety. So, when you see Jesus addressing the scribes, the scribes were just like the Pharisees. The scribes were the people that actually copied and recopied the text, and they knew the scripture like crazy. They knew all the um, different commentators' words on the scripture, so they would copy and recopy the text. So when Jesus, in our main text, Matthew 5, he's addressing the scribes and Pharisees because they are the ones who had their hands all on the scriptures. They are the ones that were influencing the people. The people would listen to them on what is righteous and what is not righteous and what Moses meant and what Moses did mean. See, they were the ones who had the real influence on Israel during this first century. So that's why you see here, Jesus, he's saying the scribes and Pharisees because they're the ones that the people are listening to when trying to understand God's word and how to live holy and righteous. And that is why you see in those verses we just looked at in 23, Jesus is going after the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because they are the ones that are messing with God's word. They're the ones that the people are listening to. But not only did the Pharisees, were they different because they were teaching God's word and that was, that's what made them different from the Sadducees, but what made them different from the Sadducees is that the Pharisees, they believed in the oral Torah. The oral Torah. See, the oral Torah, matter of fact, I want to show you this. Go to the Old Testament. Go to the book of Exodus. I want to explain to you what I mean by the world tour. Exodus 24, you are going to use your Bible a lot today. I told you we're going to nerd out on this Jewish history and culture to get an understanding of the text. I want you to go to Exodus 24, and I want you to look at verse 12. And Let me say this before we read this text the torah when i say the torah the torah is the first five books of the bible so you have genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy that's the torah when i say the torah the first five books of the bible the sadducees only believe the first five books of the bible but the pharisees believe the first five books of the bible and they also believe the oral torah now look at verse 12 here i want to show you something what the oral torah is and where it gets its beginnings from It says, now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. Now, do you see that part where he says, and commandments? Is your Bible saying that? (laughs) Most Jewish people today, and the Pharisees, believe that God gave Moses, when he, he gave him the written law, which they have the law, but that he also... That in commandments means that God also gave Moses an interpretation of those laws. But those laws were not written down. They believed that he verbally told Moses what these commandments meant and how to teach them. That teaching is the oral Torah. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They only believed in the written Torah. But the Pharisees and most of Judaism today, they believe in the actual written Torah. And they believe that God also gave Moses an oral Torah. And that is the commandments of God. And God showed Moses, told Moses, how to interpret all of the things, all of the commandments that uh, he gave Moses for the children of Israel. So they believed in a written Torah and an oral Torah. And just so you can get a better understanding of this, the oral Torah was eventually written down. And it's in a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah. And they put, the oral Torah was written down, it was put into the Mishnah, And then eventually, a few years later, they had the the Gomorrah, which was commentary on the Mishnah, and all of that was put in one book called the Talmud, which Jewish people still read today. The Talmud is the Mishnah and the Gomorrah. And so it's it's, it's a commentary, and one is the orator. And so that's what uh, most of Judaism believes today. They believe in the orator, and and the Pharisees also believe in that. Now some of you are saying to me, okay, Jerome, this is a great history lesson. Thank you for telling me about uh, about Jewish culture and history and how they got the oral Torah, but what does this have to do with what we're reading here back in our main text in Matthew chapter 5 verses 20 to 21. The reason I'm telling you this is because Jesus, as we looked in 20, he is addressing the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And what you must understand, the Pharisees got their understanding of righteousness based on the traditions of their fathers, which is part of the oral Torah. See, many of their teachers, they had this flawed interpretation of righteousness. But yet these Pharisees, they believed it and that's what they taught to the people. So that's the reason I'm sharing you, sharing you this. And the other reason I'm sharing this with you, this history, is because in verse 21, through 48, which we we'll eventually get to, you must understand that when Jesus is speaking and talking about the law, he is not attacking Moses. He is not attacking the law, but he is going after the traditions, their interpretations of Moses and the law. So that's important that you understand that. He's not attacking the law in verse 21 through 48, what we'll uh, we'll eventually get to, but he is attacking the interpretation, the traditions of men that are flawed. He's attacking that interpretation. And so that's important to know when you get to these next verses, because you'll look at them and you'll think, hold on, is there some beef between Jesus and Moses here? No, there's no beef. He's not attacking one. He's not trying to pit himself against Moses, but he's, he's attacking Their traditions, their interpretation, their traditional understanding or reading of Moses. That is why like in verse 21, look what he says. In verse 21, he starts off it by saying, you have heard that the ancients were told. Notice, he doesn't say that You have heard that the Torah said. He doesn't say, you have heard that Moses said. See, he is not attacking the Old Testament. He is not attacking the commandments, but he's attacking the traditions of men. He's attacking these flawed interpretations that men have come to get, where they actually put the traditions of men over or equal with Scripture. That's what Jesus is attacking here in these verses. And I want to show you an example of this. Go to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through eight. I want to show you an example of how these teachers, how they started to put the traditions of men over or equal with the word of God and asked an the issue that Jesus is having. Because remember, he said you don't want to unknow the commands of God, you don't want to change them, so he's now beginning to attack what they're doing, you're changing and lessening the word of God for their own word. So look at Mark 7, look at verse 1. Look what it says. It says, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they, when, uh, they had come from Jerusalem. And that's saying that some of his disciples were eating their bread with what? In pure hands. That is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. Thus, obeying, look, the tradition of who? The elders. So you see the tradition of men coming in here. And they're holding this as a religious thing. Just like we do sometimes in some of our churches, we'll get some of our traditions in church, and we'll make them a religious thing, and say, that if you don't do that, something is up with you. That is exactly what they are doing right here. They are taking man-made teaching, and they are elevated to the level of Scripture, and so Jesus is attacking this. And look what it says here, um, verse 4. It says, for when they come from the market, they do not eat unless they clean themselves. There are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. Look at verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of who? The elders. Not according to the scriptures, not according to Moses, but according to what the traditions that we've been handed down. Why are they not doing this? See, they're really into religion here. That's religion. When you're just saying, it's not scripture, it's just something that we've always done, and now you're not doing it. So, so what's up with your guys? Why are they not doing it? See, they are very religious. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. He's showing us what religion looks like. Religion looks like just rituals, things we do, even though they're not even commanded in scripture. They're just something that somebody said that we always do, so we do them. And now they're elevating them to the level of scripture And then look what Jesus said, So, And he said to them, "Rightly did Isaiah prophesies of you, hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Seven, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of man. Verse eight, neglecting the commandments of God, you hold on to the traditions of man. See what Jesus is attacking here. He's attacking their religious system. This religiosity, which is not doing anybody any good. And before we get on our high horse and judge them, please understand, we are so guilty of this same thing. You know we, we go and say, but John Piper said, but the Puritans said, but Spurgeon said but the reformers said but my pastor said see we do the same thing we elevate people sometimes to this place where we make them infallible infallible means where they can't err and Jesus is showing us you don't want to do that yes it's fine to quote individuals yes it's fine to watch sermons on YouTube but you got to understand these are men I am men we are not infallible we can err so Jesus is showing them that no, you, you can't put people's teaching, teaching, people's philosophy on par with the Word of God. I don't care how good it sounds. I don't care what philosophy or what philosopher said it. You can never put people's philosophy or opinions on par with the Word of God. The Word of God always supreme and trumps <laughs> whatever cute saying we have, philosophy that we teach. It's the word of God that trumps all of that. And so, to sum up the scribes and the Pharisees, back in our main text, the scribes and the Pharisees, just so you can understand, they, they had the most influence on Israel's religious life when it came to piety, doctrine, and righteousness. They were the go to. Externally, they were some of the most righteous people. In Israel. Everybody looked to them because they were keeping the law of Moses and they were keeping all the traditions of the Father. So these people were considered to be the most righteous. But in 21 that we're looking at here again. Get back to our main text. We all here? Matthew 5. Matthew 5. But Jesus is now going to go and start attacking again these traditions and these systems. So in verse 21, he says, you have heard the ancients were told. Remember, he's not attacking Moses. He's not attacking the commandments. He's not doing any of that. He says, you have been told that you shall not commit murder. And so now he's going to the commandments. He's going to the commandments. He said, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. 22, look what he says here. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You must understand 22 what Jesus said, but I said is humongous. It is colossal. By Jesus making this statement, he just dropped a bomb. You know why this statement is so big? Because Jesus in verse 22 is now speaking with his own authority and giving a new teaching or interpretation to the laws of Moses. This is colossal. This is huge what Jesus just said in 22. But I say to you, this is London Bridge has fallen. This is Houston. We have a problem. This man just said, but I say to you on Moses. This This is so big. See? And here goes our Jewish history and culture and why this may not seem big to some of us. Because during this first century time, see, like, right now in society, we have all these different interpretations, right? We have everybody has their own opinion and interpretation of Scripture and what such and such means. But you must understand, at this time during the first century, people just didn't give their interpretations of Moses. You weren't qualified or authorized just to say, but I say." There was only a select few that could actually say what Jesus is saying. So what, what, what he's saying is it's a huge deal right here. Jesus is saying, but I say? You could not do this in the first century. You could not say, but I say. See, let me show you how big this is. Go to uh say book, Matthew chapter seven, verse twenty-eight. I want to show you this. what Jesus is saying, but I say it's so big, you cannot give an alternative interpretation of scripture. That's just not, that just wasn't allowed. Let me kind of connect this with you here. At 28, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is coming down, he's finished his sermon, and look what the people say after Jesus finishes this sermon that we're reading here. This This is key. It says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Do you see what's what's, what's saying here? See, it always took this verse to mean that Jesus was speaking with a real authoritative voice. And maybe he had some bass in his voice and the scribes were speaking on Timothy and Solomon. So they said Jesus spoke with authority. That is not at all what this means. So you gotta understand in 28, this verse is comparing the authority of Jesus with the authority of scribes. See, the scribes during this first century period, they could copy the text, they can reproduce it, they can tell you what other commentators said on it. They can give you all of their interpretation, but a scribe can never say, but I say to you. That is the key. That is what these people are saying. They said, hold on, Jesus, is, he's speaking with his own authority. See, a scribe can never say, but I say to you when it comes to the law, to, to the books of Moses. A scribe can only say, well, Gamaliel, who Paul said at his feet, Gamaliel was a rabbi. A scribe can say, Gamaliel said that this verse means that. Or a scribe can say, this rabbi says this. But a scribe can never say, but I say to you. That was only for a select few that had the authority to give new teaching or new interpretation to Moses. Why? Because in order for you to speak on Moses and give any new interpretation, in order for you to say anything different, you had to have what the Hebrew or the Jews call Swiha It's spelled uh, or smikha, smikha. It's a Hebrew word, smikha. It's a Hebrew word for authority. You had to have smikha in order for you to read Moses and give an interpretation, your interpretation. See, back and he says, you can only quote, the people could quote, they can only get interpretation from certain people, but they can never do what Jesus said in five and say, but I say to you, you can only be a sneak rabbi and say such a thing. So that is why 28, the crowd is just like, whoa. This guy Jesus, he's speaking with authority. He's speaking with me. He's not speaking like the rabbis or like the scribes, and he's not just quoting other people. He's not just giving other commentaries, interpretation of Moses. But now he's bringing a new interpretation from himself. So that is humongous in 28. What Jesus is doing, oh, the, the crowd? See, the first century crowd understood it. They're amazed at this. We read this and we say, "Oh, it's just speaking bold with authority." No, that's in Jesus. Is speaking with Smechah. He's speaking like a Smechah, rabbi. He's giving us a new interpretation. See, remember when we were talking, I was telling you about the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, in addition to the oral Torah, there's also debates between different rabbis in there. Different rabbis with Smechah. See, they can speak on scripture. They can debate, but the average person, a scribe and people, some of the people in the Sanhedrin, they couldn't speak on scripture like that. But Jesus does who he is, he is speaking with Smechab. So you got to understand this. I'll uh, uh, only show you how Smechab began. matter of fact. Go to the book of Exodus. i gonna show you where this comes from. Exodus 18. And this is why it's important to understand culture and history of the people in the first century, because you will miss things like that in Scripture if you don't understand the history and the culture. I want to show you where the Jews believe Smechah came from. It's the story. It's Exodus 18. Verse, I'm going to just summarize some verses for you. Exodus 18, look at verse 24. Just to summarize, this is this place where Moses is getting like overwhelmed because you have all these people coming to him with these little problems of minor issues, and and Moses is getting crazy overwhelmed, so his father-in-law Jethro comes and tells Moses, I suppose you are dealing and addressing everybody's issue, how about you appoint some guys and then allow them to kind of judge these issues, and the major things, they will come to you, and so in 24, look what it says, so Moses listens to his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times, the difficult disputes they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. This is the verse where the Jews believe that Smiha was passed down. See, the Jews believe right now in the first century Jews, they believe that that anointing when Moses appointed people, the to, to judge, he was giving them his authority. They were now speaking like Moses. So he was passed on this smicha. And so the Jews believe that that smikha has got passed down over and over throughout history. And so a rabbi, he would pass on this smicha to another disciple who would also be a rabbi. And and the Jews believe that smikha, classical smikha, it ended somewhere around the 4th or 5th century because the last person with smikha passed away. There's some debate, some say that maybe in the 12th century it ended, but they believe that classical smicha, this authority, this anointed authority from Moses, passed away. So that's what smicha it's this authority to teach the scriptures, to teach the Torah. It's an unbroken chain, they believe, of people speaking on the Torah. Let me give you another example of smicha. Look at Numbers 27. Numbers 27. For some of you, you like, man, this is like we're in seminary or something. But it's important that you understand this because when you understand the culture, then you understand Jesus' words and power. And this is when Joshua was going to succeed in Moses. Watch what happens here. Look at verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hands on him. Because when they were going to pass on Smechah, they, they would lay their hands on the person. Just like with a sacrifice. They, they laid their hands on the sacrifice and transfer transferred their sin. It's the same thing. They're laying their hands on them to transfer that authority, that power. So it says, so the Lord said, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, and, um, and lay hands on them. Verse 19. And it says, and have him stand before Eliezer, the priest, and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. Look what twenty says. And you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. So Moses is passing on his authority to Joshua. So he's going to um, interpret and give the knowledge of the scriptures and pass that on. So the rabbis believe that that thing was passed on, that was passed on, that was passed on. Smechah. Another question you might be asking now. Okay, I get how Moses and Joshua get it, but how exactly did the rabbis or a person get Smechah? In order for you to get Smechah, you had to first go through all the the three levels of the Jewish school, just like we have elementary, middle school, and high school. The same thing with the Jewish community. You had to go through all three levels. not only did you have to go through all three levels you had to memorize the Torah not a verse not a chapter but get the first five books of your Bible and memorize everything word for word that was the starting point and they're doing this in high school so that's the starting point so in order for you to even be you gotta first memorize the first five books of the Bible And then after that, if you're good enough, you would go to a rabbi, a rabbi who you want to follow, a rabbi who you want to be like, a rabbi whose interpretation of scripture that you want to get, a rabbi whose walk you love and you want to be just like, and you would go to this rabbi, and you would ask them if they could uh, disciple you, basically. It's kind of like, you know, in college, our seniors, when they're going to go to college, They mail off their college applications. And some people will mail off their college applications to like Harvard or Princeton and Yale, really prestigious schools, and they're waiting to see if the rabbi or or the school will, will accept him. That's the equivalent of what happens in the first century with Jewish boys. They would go to their rabbi after they prove and they would show them how good they are. They show that they know Torah. The rabbi would test them. And they would ask this rabbi, basically, if they can be discipled by this rabbi. And if they make the cut, guess what the rabbi would say? Come follow me. Does that sound familiar? What does that tell you that Jesus was doing? Jesus is teaching like a first century Hebrew rabbi. You got to understand? That's why I say you got to understand the culture. When you look at the words of Jesus, he would say, Come and follow me. And then they would spend they say, some say, up to 10 years following around this rabbi everywhere he went so they can learn to live like him, so they can learn to talk like him, so they can learn to walk like him, so they can learn how he interpreted the scriptures. They were following him. That is what discipleship means. And not only would they follow this rabbi, I guess what? What they would do? When the rabbi said, Come and follow me, they would leave their mother. Father, they would leave their family business, they would leave everything behind to follow the rabbi that they wanted to be like. This does not sound familiar when Jesus said, If anybody's gonna follow me, you gotta hate your father and mother. He's not saying hate but love less. You gotta put all that aside and follow me. So they would do that to follow the rabbi. That's what discipleship is, is to leave all, and we're following Jesus. The the Talmud, which is the first-century Jewish disciple, would be, he would follow his rabbi so intently, so close, that he finds statements like this written in in, uh, antiquity. That's what they would say: if a man's father and his rabbi are both taken captive, a disciple, a Talmud, should ransom his rabbi first. You guys see this? Yeah. <laughs> you see what Jesus is saying? You, you like, see, he's teaching like a first century rabbi. You gotta understand who he is. And it says, or if his father and his master are carrying heavy burdens, he removes that of his master, and afterwards removes that of his father. So the rabbi and the disciple were so tight and close. The rabbi was everything. That's why Jesus has to be our everything. It's not just, no, my mom, my kids. No, he is number one. He is my all. I'm going to follow him because I want to be just like him. I want to understand God just like him. He's the way, the God. I'm following this person. See, that's a, the Talmud. And so after this, this this disciple would follow this rabbi, after years of follow, if he made the cut, some rabbis or some Talmuds would just be regular rabbis Torah teachers. But if he made the cut and was really temporary, other rabbis would come and they would ordain them, basically. They would lay their hands on, their, on him and they would pass on their smithah. And when they did that, this rabbi now, the disciples now, a rabbi would be able to have his own disciples and to give interpretation or to speak on scripture. So that's why in Matthew 7, 28, when just look at it. When, Je- when it says that Jesus didn't speak like the scribe. He's saying that Jesus spoke with his own authority. He spoke like a Smechah rabbi. He spoke like someone who has authority within himself. That's why the crowd was amazed when he comes down on the side of the month. I want to show you another example of this Smechah and how Jesus' teaching was really going on the way. Look in Mark chapter 1. Verse 23. Mm-hmm. 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 Don't you guys like nerding out? <laughs> <verse 23>? Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Mark 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. Mm-hmm. Verse mm-hmm. 21. sorry, we're sorry. 21, we'll go to 22. Mm-hmm. Here we go. 21, I'm going to go to 22. Beginning when Jesus starts to preach. It says in 21, they went into the and immediately on the Sabbath, talking about Jesus, he entered into the synagogue and began to teach. Okay, so Jesus enters on the Sabbath, he goes and teach. What are you teaching, Jesus? Are you teaching something that we already know? Are you teaching like all of our other teachers? What's going to happen here? Look at 22 it says, and they were amazed at his teaching, why are you why are they amazed at your teaching Jesus for he was teaching them as one having what? authority and not as who? The scribes you see it again what's happening here, he's not teaching like scribes who will say, well such and such said this about Moses, or such and such said this about Torah, no, he's teaching in his own authority he's giving new teaching, he's giving something new, you could not do this That's why this this verse is here, this show, us, like Jesus is speaking with a new authority. He's speaking with sin. Look at verse 27. It says, they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Jesus is bringing a new, he's not speaking like our scribes here. He's not speak, speaking like the regular people that we hear in synagogue. Jesus is saying something totally different. And, and it's backed up with power because now this, this demon just gets rebuked and comes out. So he's speaking with smeeha. He has a real authority. He's not just speaking like people we hear. He has authority behind his words, there's power behind his words. He, they're amazed. Like, what type of new teaching this is this? We haven't heard this before. It's Jesus is speaking with authority. And you're like, what is this? Another place, I want to show another example of this. Go back, go to Matthew chapter 21. And look at verse 23. I think so we we'll said here 23, Matthew 21, 23. It says, He, talking about Jesus, when He entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to Him while He was teaching and said, Look what they're asking. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Do you see what they're asking? Who gave you Smitha? How can you do this? Which rabbi laid his hands on you and gave you smichai? who Who is the fruit of your teaching? You're giving new teaching here. You're doing new things. Where did you get this authority from? Because you didn't get it from us. That's why they're coming to question him. He's speaking with a way that's totally new. He's going outside of their system. So they're like, where is this coming from, Jesus? How did you get this? He's speaking with Back to our main text. Matthew 5. 22 so we see that Jesus is he's speaking with Smechah to where now in 22 in 21, 21, 22 he equates anger with a brother or sister with murder that's speaking with an authority that's not what the scribes were teaching. That's not what the Torah teachers were teaching during this time. Nobody equates anger with a brother or a sister with murder, But Jesus, speaking with his own authority. See, with this one statement that Jesus makes here, when he says, But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. What Jesus is doing, he's putting a pin, he's sticking a pin into the self-inflated, self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Because guess what? When it comes to murder, they can be like, yeah, I've done this, but I'm righteous. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to anger with brother, they're guilty of that. So what Jesus is doing right here, he's bringing them now down. Back from their high pie-in-the-sky righteousness to bring them back down to reality. Saying, no, you're guilty just like everyone else. You're just as guilty as the harlot. You're just as guilty as the prostitute. You're just as guilty as the publican. By Jesus making this statement, he's putting a pin in their self-righteousness and bringing them back down. See, it's no different from society today. I'm sure Eduardo will tell you, Andrew will tell you, only will tell you. When they go knock on doors or talk to people, you ask them if they're going to heaven. Yes, I'm going to heaven. Why am I going to heaven? I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. And I'm a good person because I haven't murdered anybody. Amen. I take care of my kids. I go to work. I pay my taxes. I haven't robbed anybody, so I'm a good person. That's that's, that's the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees i haven't done these things over here, I obeyed the tradition of my fathers. But Jesus goes and says, no, I'm equating anger with a brother or sister with murder. And what is this? This shows us the righteousness of the kingdom of God. The righteousness of the kingdom of God far exceeds any righteousness here on earth. That's what Jesus is showing. us. This is the righteousness of the kingdom of God. I see your righteousness here, but no, it's, it, if you're angry with a brother or sister it's in my eyes because God is so holy, he so said, that's murder. That's the righteousness of the kingdom of God. So Jesus, with his statements here, he's bringing these scribes and putting them now back on evil field with everybody else because they, they were filling themselves. They thought that they were holy and righteous, but now with this one word, Jesus brings them back down in reality. See, and, and I think D. A. Carson got it right about this passage. D. Um, A. Carson again, quoting Carson, because I agree. I agree with what he's saying, but I'm not making him infallible. He can be wrong; I can miss it. But um, I think he gets it right on his uh, with his commentary on these verses. He, he comments on verse 20 basically, and he says this. He says the servant on the mount lays the foundation for New Testament doctrines of justification by grace through faith and sanctification by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And what he means by that is, look at 20, let me show you what what I believe he means by that and what I believe he's saying here. When you look at 20, verse 20, Jesus tells the crowd and his disciples that their righteousness must surpass The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But you gotta understand, to the people that Jesus is speaking to, the scribes and the Pharisees, at least externally, they were the most righteous people on earth. And now you're, you, Mr. Jesus, is telling me that i got to be more righteous than the most righteous people on earth, the ones that I get my Torah teacher from, the one that I'm learning the law from, the one who's correcting me. you tell me i got to be more righteous than them? See, Jesus, he's really showing them the righteousness of the kingdom. See, Jesus' statement in telling them that they have to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees is like Jesus going to me and saying, hey, Jerome, I need you to go play one-on-one basketball with LeBron James and beat him. I need you to go play one-on-one basketball with Michael Jordan and beat him. Or Shaquille O'Neal. I'm going to be like, but Jesus, they're the best of the best. How can you expect me to beat the best of the best? That's what these people are hearing when they hear Jesus speak. What? The kingdom of God? Is that righteous? That I gotta be more righteous than the most righteous people that I know and see? See, he's putting a huge standard on them. Amen. And not only does he put this huge standard on them, as we just seen, he goes and he equates murder with anger with a brother or sister. Unrighteous, unjust anger. You see the standards that Jesus is putting for the kingdom of God? You gotta be more righteous than the most righteous? And even this thing that you may feel that's small when you're angry and upset, that that is equated with murder? See, the point that Carson is making and what we see in the is that when you read the Sermon on the Mount, when you see the commandments of God, you do not walk away feeling superior. You do not walk away feeling like, oh, I I got this. This is no big deal. But as you read through this sermon on the Mount, guess what? You should become ever more conscious of your spiritual depravity. You should become ever more conscious of your spiritual bankruptcy. Beatitude number one, blessed are the poor in spirit. As you read the righteousness of the kingdom of God, it should make you see like, oh my goodness, Jesus, if this is the righteousness of the kingdom of God, then there's no way I'm getting in my own. There's no way I'm making it into my own righteousness. I need a savior. I need somebody that's going to give me the, the power, the ability to do this. See, that is what the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus' words does. It pushes you towards a savior because you see these standards of God and you know that within yourself there's no way I can do this on my own. There's no way I can be this righteous and holy. See, he's laying the foundation for grace and mercy. That's what Carson is saying. By these verses here because the standard of righteousness see when you read through the sermon on the mountain and you hear Jesus' teaching you do not feel high on the horse like oh my god this is nothing no the feeling should be more like the person in Romans 7 you remember the person in Romans 7 right the one who said I look at the law of God and it's really good but then I look inside of me and I see how bad I am. There's no way that I can keep up this law of God. Matter of fact, you guys are looking at me crazy, so let's go to Romans 7. <laughs> All right. Let's go to Romans 7 so you can see what I'm talking about here. Romans 7, look at verse uh, 22. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. The law of God is good. I joyfully agree. I agree, he says. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So he looked at the law of God in the previous chapters and he says, it's good. This is a good thing, God. Your law is good. But he says, I look inside of myself and it's yucky, it's nasty, and I realize... Man, there's nothing in me that's going to be able to keep God's law. God is so holy and righteous, I can't keep it. And so that is the mindset that we should be having, basically, when we're looking at the holiness of God. Not like, I got this, but like, whoa, really, God? I'm so messed up. I can keep this? But here's, I want to show you what the, the man says here in Romans 7, verse 24. This is the, the natural following of this first thought of, oh, my goodness, how can I keep this law? 24, he says, wretch man that I am. So he realizes that God's law is holy. I look at myself and I'm like God, how can I keep this standard? And he comes to the proper conclusion of himself. He doesn't think of himself as great. He doesn't think of himself as mighty, as the world would try to tell you. He says, no, what a wretched man that I am. So he has a sober opinion of himself, which is great, which is good, which is what we need. We need a sober opinion of ourselves because the world will tell you that you are grand. There's nothing wrong with you. No, that, that problem you have is not sin. It's just a dishonor, it's a dysfunction. It'll give you some psychological term to make you feel good about yourself. But no, we see the man here in Romans 7 having a sober thought on himself, he's looking at God's holiness, his righteousness, and he looks at himself and he says, nah, I I can't keep this, yes it's good, but I am a wretch man, but then look at the response after that, in verse 24, he says, who will set me free from the body of this death, he's looking for something outside of himself. Outside of himself to help set him free. See, the law of God is pushing him towards a savior. You see that? He recognizes the holiness of God. He recognizes that he can't do it. And he says, who will set me free? I'm in bondage. I need to be delivered. I need a Savior. So the law of God is pushing him to a Savior. And that is what happens even with the Sermon on the Mount. We see Jesus is teaching the holiness, the righteousness of the kingdom of God. It's intimidating, but then it pushes us to say, God, I need grace and mercy. That's the only way I'm going to keep this. That's the only way I'm going to do this. It pushes us towards a Savior. It pushes us towards Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.24 says that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ and that we are justified by faith. God's holiness, his righteous standards, it pushes us to a Savior. See our first response when we read the Sermon on the Mount, when we're going through and seeing Jesus' commandments, our first response is, let me figure out how to keep all these rules. That's not our first response on how I'm going to do all this. But it's saying, no, I'm unworthy. So Jesus, I'm going to follow you closer and closer. I want to see how you model this. I I want your power living in me. I want to follow, you I'm want to be everywhere with you because I see this standard of holiness and righteousness, and I, I know there's nothing in myself, so I'm, I'm sticking close to you as a disciple, as a tell me to see how you did it, to see how you do it because I need your strength, your power. Mm-hmm. See, that's what happens <laughs> when we look at the words of God when we encounter the kingdom of righteousness, when we encounter his holiness. We don't look to our strength. We look more to Jesus his authority, to who he is, this is the righteousness of the kingdom, and it's by Jesus' authority and power that we can keep it. So as we've seen today, we come to a close. Jesus shows us what his authority looks like. gives us the understanding of the kingdom of God, the righteousness of the kingdom of God. The people were blown away by the authority of Jesus. Not just the authority, but it was backed up with power and then casting out demons, he said in Mark 1. I'm going to ask you, how is Jesus' authority in your life? Does he have any authority in your life? Are you trusting in his power and authority to overcome whatever is coming against you? Are you hoping in that authority when life gets hard, when trials and tribulations come? Do you realize that you are following Jesus, the one with all authority, all swikha? He has all authority. Authority to give new interpretations of Moses. Authority to give his own interpretations of Moses. Authority to say whatever he will. He has all authority. How is his authority in your life? How is his authority in my life? That is the question we must ask. Are we trusting in His authority? My brothers and sisters, you have the living God with you. God is for you. Who can be against you? That's power and authority. You have to walk with a sense of confidence, knowing that God is with you, that you have the authority of God. Don't let these just be words that you'll read, but understand there's power in the words of Christ. So we'll stop here. And uh coming weeks we'll really get to detail on some of these things that Jesus hits on. But again, I wanted to just set up 20 and 21 because understanding them helps to understand all these others. And understanding the Jewish history and culture helps us to understand Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, I feel my flesh right now saying things that's not even right. Lord God, in the name of Jesus, take that thought from my mind. Oh God. It's all you, it's all you, you, Holy Spirit, you, the Sovereign. It's your words, God, it's not my words. It's your words, God, mm-hmm. nothing without you, Lord. Mm-hmm. It's your words, Lord God, just a vessel, Lord, it's you. Thank you for your word, Lord. May Your Word touch the people today, Lord. God, bring them to just more of You as they understand Your Word and truth. God, may they walk in Your authority, knowing that there's nothing that can come against them. May they know that You have all authority in their life. <laughs> may they follow You, God, tightly as a true disciple. True, tell me, Lord, may they follow You wherever You go. Thank <laughs>